Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. John 18, verse 1 to 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Hi there, and welcome to the Bible Talks. This is the Boutique Talk. Uh, and we're in the boutique week of university. So well done for being at the boutique talk in the boutique week of university. And uh, it'll be worth it. This is a great passage. I think we have so much to learn today from this passage. I think you're going to enjoy this passage. So let's uh, pray for God's help to understand it. And then we'll jump into it. And there's lots of great things for us to discover. So please pray with me. 
Our Father God, we're really thankful to you that you speak to us in the Bible and you teach us what you are like and what you've done through the Lord Jesus for us. Please help us to understand this passage today so that we better understand what Jesus has done for us so that we might respond the right way to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you like to think of yourself? How do you like to think of yourself? If I, if I asked you to describe your character, you'd use pretty positive words, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd, you'd use pretty glowing terms to speak about yourself. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're like, isn't it? Um, for, for instance, let me give you a possibility. Trustworthy or untrustworthy? Which one are you going to go for? I reckon you're going to go for trustworthy, right? You, you are a trustworthy kind of person, even if you're a little bit, you know, maybe struggling in that area, you'd probably still go, I'm trustworthy. How about um, reliable or unreliable? Not many of us are going to go unreliable, are we? We're going to choose the kind of more positive term. Now, we could have a show of hands here, couldn't we? We could put it out there and go, okay, reliable, unreliable. No, we better not do that. We don't want anyone to be too embarrassed. But see, who of us would describe ourselves as unfaithful? when we've got the opportunity to go faithful. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, who among us would describe themselves as weak? Well, we might not be super strong, but we're strong enough, aren't we? Who'd go for weak? Committed? Better than uncommitted? Which ones would you be using to describe yourselves? We tend to like to think of ourselves in fairly glowing terms, don't we? See, me, I'm, I'm obviously a good guy, uh, faithful, committed, reliable, strong, obviously. Uh, and I don't generally want to let the truth get in the way of, you know, me claiming that either, you know. And you'd be the same, wouldn't you? You like to think of yourself in fairly glowing terms just like me. It's only natural. Now, what about the Apostle Peter? He probably liked to think about himself in fairly glowing terms as well, don't you think? He wouldn't have been any different from us. He was like the alpha male of the disciples. Like he, he was leadership material. He was a fisherman by trade, so you've got to think deadliest catch kind of tough. You know, he, he's a tough guy, rugged. He can take care of himself. And I'm sure that he would have liked to use words to describe himself like faithful, committed, reliable, trustworthy. But was he? And were those traits enough? We're going to have a close look at Peter's struggles in this passage because in many ways, in this chapter, his story is our story. So we've just had it. David gave us a little bit of an update on the context of where we're at. Let me just uh, reinforce that. John's Gospel keeps showing us that Jesus is the great Son of God, Messiah. But we've watched that this hasn't been clearly seen by the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders uh, to whom he has come. And so there's opposition from them towards him. And we've been watching in John's Gospel as that opposition has been growing towards a crescendo. Now in chapters 13 to 17, those four chapters all took place in one room. One room on one night as Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples and taught them so much about God, about him, about them and about the kingdom. And it was the last night before his death. Now, chapter 18 begins a new section in John's Gospel. The Passover meal, it's over. Jesus and his disciples have headed out into the Jerusalem night. They are heading for a solitary place, but Jesus and his disciples are not the only ones on the move. Judas has already gone out, has already betrayed Jesus to the religious authorities, 
And as Jesus strolls to the olive grove, the religious authorities are gathering their forces and mustering the might of the law against Jesus. So we're at point one, law and order. And my question to you is, how do you run from the law? I think you've seen enough police dramas to know what you should do when the authorities are hot on your trail. You know, you've watched the shows, you know what you should do. If the law is ever hot on your trail because, I don't know, you haven't paid your library late fees or something really bad like that. If you are running from the law, I think you've got a fairly good idea of what you need to do to get away. But just in case you're struggling, I have my top three tips on running from the law. First tip, don't go to your usual haunts. Okay, you can't go where you usually go. Wherever you normally buy coffee, don't go there. Wherever you normally catch up with your friends, don't go there. Quad, you can't go there, okay? That's, uh, that's not going to work. You've got to go to different places. Look at how Jesus does this in verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Ooh. So Jesus knows that these guys are after him, right? He knows the authorities are after him. He knows that Judas has betrayed him to the authorities, and yet he goes straight to the exact place that Judas knows he'll go to. That's not very effective evasion. Tip two. Tip two on running from the law is when you hear the cops coming, get out of there. Run. Okay, let's, let's think about how Jesus did on this one. Verses three and four. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? This is, Jesus has not read the cops and robbers script very well. This is not going how it should go. We have a fairly large, well-armed, well-lit detachment of soldiers and religious leaders and their servants. They would not have been able to approach stealthily. They've got lanterns and swords and shields and it would have been really loud, really obvious. And Jesus doesn't run away. Instead of running away, Jesus goes towards them. This is all wrong. My third tip for you being an aspiring fugitive is this. When asked your name, reply with an alias. I actually learned this one from personal experience. See, I was about 12 at the time, and um, I had a mate who was a little bit too street smart. You, you might have had one of those friends growing up. Just a little bit too street smart, so they're always getting you in just a little bit too much trouble. Anyway, we're coming home on the bus from school one day, about 12 years of age, and we, I, I can't remember what we did, maybe selective memory, but I can't remember what we did, but the bus driver was really steamed up about it. He got out of his seat, sort of dragged us off the bus, put us on the curb, and then said, all right, you two, what are your names? And I, I kind of went weak at the knees and started shaking and went, oh, Carl Matai, sir, and probably added something like, please don't tell my mummy, I think was probably the state that I was in. Now, my street smart friend, how street smart do you have to be to do this? Quick as a flash, he said, he's lying. That's not his real name. Oh, how clever is that? I, I couldn't even do it, and he just covers for me amazingly well. Um, now, then I think... I'd overestimated his street smarts just a little bit because after that he added, his real name is George Harrison. Now, you're probably a little bit too young to know that George Harrison was a member of the Beatles. At 12 years of age, 
35 years ago. I knew that. And so if you're going to choose an alias, can I advise you don't choose a member of the world's most famous band. That's my advice. Now, how will Jesus go on this one? Let's read verses 4 and 5. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. I am he. Does Jesus not have any idea of the script, the usual cops and robbers script? He's doing it all wrong. And so you've seen the big idea going on here for a while, haven't you? Jesus is not trying to evade arrest here. It's very clear. But something really interesting happens here. See, in a sense, how do you arrest God? How do you arrest God? Something very weird happens at this point in the story. I don't know whether you noticed it as we read through the passage the first time, but something weird happens in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's weird. Okay, they've, they've gone out with only one intention. They have gone out to arrest this guy called Jesus of Nazareth. They, he says to them, all right, I'm the man. Why do they then draw back and fall over? That's weird. This is the kind of thing you might like to talk about with the person next to you, because I'd be interested in their thoughts and yours. Let's put it up on the screen. Why do you think they draw back and fall over when Jesus says, I am he? 30 seconds with the person next to you. See what they think. Go for it. Okay, let's have a think about this together. Interesting. Why? Why are they falling over? Well, the clue to this falling over is a bit obscured in our English Bibles. In the Greek language that John first wrote in, Jesus literally says, and you've probably, some of you have picked it up, he literally says, I am. Now, because that's not a real sentence in English, our English translators have kind of added a word, I am he, to help us understand it. But there's something about I am that's a bit significant to the Old Testament. If you've read much of the Old Testament, you probably know that I am is the way God introduces himself in the Old Testament a number of times. The first one was when Moses um, saw God in the burning bush and says, who are you? And God introduced himself saying, I am, and then explains himself with the equally provocative, I am who I am. Um, and so I am is a really significant kind of divine title. And so when Jesus says, I am, their falling over tells you something. Their backing away and falling over tells you they get it. We might not get it in the English quite as easily, but they get it. And they suddenly realise that he's making a claim to being divine. And they perhaps also suddenly realise that they are trying to arrest God. They react in this weird way. Because if this claim is true, then they are about to arrest God. And how do you arrest God? Your only hope of arresting God is if he hands himself in, isn't it? What other hope have you got of arresting God? And that's exactly the point of this whole passage so far. Jesus is handing himself in, isn't he? But you know, good old Simon Peter, you can always rely on good old Simon Peter. He's always going to do something, isn't he? And he's, um, he's reading off a different script. So let's have a look at what he does. Verse 10. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. See, Simon Peter's finally got the script out and he's gone, oh, this is where I should strike first and strike hard. And so with all the battle skill of a fisherman, uh, he has a, what could only be described as a wild swing. I mean, there's a lot of body to aim for and you get an ear. I mean, all right, maybe it's harder than it looks. Uh, with all the battle skill of a fisherman, he lops off the poor guy's ear. It's not exactly the charge of the light brigade, is it? But Peter's having a bit of a go. Jesus tells him, no, you're reading from the wrong script. This is not cops and robbers. This is the Lamb of God willingly offering himself as a voluntary sacrifice. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? As Jesus speaks about drinking this cup that his Father has given him, we are going to start to realise just how willingly Jesus is giving himself up here. But we need to think about what is really going on here. We're at point two, what is really going on here? This cup has a really interesting history in the, in the Bible. The Old Testament speaks metaphorically about God's judgment being like a cup that you drink. Now, let me show you um, when Israel was... Um, See, Israel was really good at ignoring God and walking away from God and turning to other idols and all kinds of stuff. And God's, God would punish his people for that kind of, kind of willful rejection of their God. Here is a good example um, in Isaiah 51 verse 17. God says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is Isaiah saying, hey, that judgment that God has sent in the form of that invading army, the Babylonians, that has been the judgment of God and we've been drinking it. It's the judgment of God upon our sin. Now, um, Israel drank that cup. They faced the judgment of God in the form of that invading army coming in and trashing their, their homes uh, and taking them off into exile in Babylon. That was the judgment of God. But there came a point where Israel cried out to their God for mercy and repentance. And at that point, the cup comes up again. Look at how it comes up. From a few verses later in the chapter, uh, yep, just one more, that's the one, thanks. Uh, from verses 22 and 23, Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. And I will put into the hand, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Can you see what God does here? When his people have been fully judged for their wickedness, he says, all right, you, you Babylonians who've trashed my people, you need to drink the cup now. And they face the judgment of God, his anger at their sin. So drinking the cup is a metaphor for facing the judgment of God, the anger of God in judgment. And when Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me, he is saying that he's willing to face the anger and the judgment of God. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus is willingly taking upon himself in his death the judgment of God. 
He's about to absorb God's anger at the sin of humanity in his own death. And that brings us right to the heart of what Christianity is all about. We all deserve to drink the cup, don't we? We haven't always treated God as we should have. We're the ones who haven't listened to God the way we should have. We're the ones who've disregarded God for too long. We are the ones who deserve to drink the cup. But Jesus steps in, in our place, and drinks the cup of God's judgment at the cross. In a sense, facing the death penalty that we deserved for our sin. So if we put our trust in Jesus... We can avoid facing God's anger and judgment that we rightly deserve for our sin because Jesus has already taken it in our place. I want you to see that Jesus is committed to the good of his people. Jesus gives himself to the authorities so that his people can go free. We see it illustrated in this passage. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. The people whom God the Father has called to have faith in Jesus will not be lost by Jesus. Jesus doesn't drop people. Jesus has safe hands. And those who've been called by God to be saved in Jesus, well, they are safe, safe for all eternity in safe hands. Um, back in John 10, if you were around, uh, was it last year we dealt with John 10? It was, wasn't it? Um, Jesus spoke about this kind of security. I want to remind you of it because it's so beautiful. Um, back in John 10, verses 27 to 29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Can you feel the security you have when you trust in Jesus? If you are with Jesus, you are safe with Jesus. And even as we come to chapter 18 and Jesus is looking down the barrel of a really horrendous death on a cross, Jesus loses none of those who are his. They're even safe in that terrifying place where he is going to be dragged away and executed. Jesus' protection of the disciples on that night is an illustration of his protection of all his people for all eternity. Now, why do I need to make a point about this? It's because sometimes God's people don't always feel so safe with Jesus. And you might be able to remember times in your own life when you were tempted to doubt that God would really keep you safe. Perhaps there have been times of suffering or sickness when you thought, God is not able to keep me safe. Perhaps there have been times when you haven't been overly faithful towards God and you thought, well, God wouldn't want to keep me safe. I don't deserve to be kept safe. No matter what your situation, if you trust in Jesus, you, can, you need to know the security that you have in Jesus. If you've been called by God to place your trust in Jesus, then you are secure, secure with God. If you're anxious that you might fall from God's grace, then be encouraged by this Bible truth. Jesus never loses any who are his. Now, that doesn't mean life will always be rosy, life will always be easy. No, no, no. Sometimes we'll go through some really dark valleys. 
But in the hard times, take comfort from this promise that Jesus won't drop you. If you're safe with Jesus, you are eternally safe with Jesus. So the arresting party ties Jesus up and they take him back to trial before the Jewish religious leaders. Let's pick it up in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. All right, Jesus is being dragged before, well, he's being dragged before the father-in-law of the high priest. That's a little odd, isn't it? Bit weird? Well, it sounds odd until I give you a little bit of first century Middle Eastern politics. The father-in-law named Annas, he had been high priest between 6 AD and 15 AD. In 15 AD, there's a bit of a power struggle and the Roman ruler of the area, remember Rome, superpower, in control, governing the Jewish state, if you like. Rome, Roman ruler says, I don't like you as high priest anymore. You're not going to be high priest anymore. And so for the next five years, five of Annas's sons were high priest, one after the other. Uh, nepotism isn't dead, is it? And now it's the son-in-law's turn. So he's number six of, uh, of this. But obviously, father-in-law still holds the reins pretty tightly, doesn't he? Now, we haven't even really seen Caiaphas yet on this night, have we? We've just been told that he's about his father-in-law. But what is interesting is, as this father-in-law is introduced, John gives us a little incidental detail about Caiaphas. Have a look at it. Verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, let's go back to when that was originally spoken because I think it's worth having a quick look at it. It's back in John 11. Just flick back in your Bibles. Flick back to John 11, verses 49 to 52. John 11, about halfway through the Gospel. John 11 from verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, to the other Jewish leaders, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. All right, that's when it originally happened. And obviously when Caiaphas first said it, it was political expediency. Let's sacrifice this one guy, Jesus, um, so the whole nation doesn't get kind of really trashed by the Romans being grumpy. Really, that's what it was all about for him. But for God, it was a lot more. There was a lot more going on. God was speaking through him to prophesy about this one guy, Jesus, dying for the nation. And the next verse goes on to speak even beyond the nation. That's the background. Now, flick back to John 18, because my question for you is, why do we need to be reminded about that prophecy just to introduce his father-in-law? Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? The odd bits are always the most interesting bits, so that's why we dig into them. And my tip for good Bible reading is, if there's an odd bit, it's probably a key to the passage, so dig in well. So I'm going to give you the question so you can have fun with it yourself. Why do you think John reminds us about that prophecy just to introduce his father-in-law? 30 seconds of the person next to you, see what they think? This may be a bit hard, but you can have fun anyway. Go for it. All right, this was pretty tough, so let's, uh, let's have a think about it together. Not an easy question, but remember, it's always worth assuming that the biblical author is not a moron. 
Okay, it's a great assumption that they're not stupid. So John hasn't put this here accidentally. Oh, look, it's that, that guy that we talked about back there. This is deliberate. Let's assume it's deliberate. It usually is. This is what's called a literary device. And the art students are just loving it right now, aren't they? Um, it's, a literary device is a writer's tool to help us understand something that's about to be written. See, John has placed that reminder here about Caiaphas's prophecy because he wants us to have that prophecy at the front of our minds as we read this chapter. Because it'll help us to understand what's going on. It is good for one man to die for the people. All right, we're at point three, strong or weak. See, with all this excitement about this prophecy, I hope you haven't forgotten about our mate Peter. Sometimes Peter gets a bit of a bad rap about what happens next in this passage. But I guess I'm wondering, is Peter really such a weak failure? Let's have a read, verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, where are the other ten disciples by this point? Hmm. Not there. That's interesting, isn't it? We're down to the last two who've stayed with Jesus. The others are gone already. We've got only the two gutsiest disciples have followed Jesus all the way into the home of his chief accuser. Now, the other disciple, he's known by the high priest, so he's offered entry into the courtyard where Jesus stands facing trial. Peter is not only not known, he's not only an outsider in this little this house, but remember whose ear he just lopped off? It was the servant of the high priest. That's not going to make Peter very popular at this party, is it? Mm. Yet Peter is willing to walk into the lion's den. Now, you know what it feels like to, to be in an intimidating place. You've felt that feeling, haven't you? You know, whether it was kind of the, um, the very high-class function that you didn't quite feel classy enough to, to feel at home in, whether it was the job interview where you kind of really felt, oh, this is really hard, whether it was the law court, I don't know whether you've had to be a witness in a trial or something, you thought, oh, man, I'm so out of my depth here. Um, for me, the place where I have felt most intimidated in all my life was in Silverwater Prison. As a visitor, I visited twice. It is just intense because you you're in the prison. There's no visiting area where it's separate from all the inmates. You're in amongst it. And so I, I, I spend my whole time trying to look like I'm not freaking out and trying to look like I'm not weak and vulnerable and scared and um, probably doing a really bad job of it. That's the kind of intimidation that you've got to have in mind for Peter going into this place. That's what's going on. Can you see how unbelievably courageous it is for Peter to follow Jesus all the way into the home of his chief accuser? He's pretty tough, isn't he? He's pretty courageous. But as this passage goes on, we're going to start to see a contrast. See, as tough and courageous as Peter is, he still can't stand the pressure that Jesus is facing. In verse 17, the pressure begins to rise for Peter. Let's have a look. Verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? 
He said, I am not. Peter gets the question and he must have been dreading, please don't let me be recognised. Please don't let me be recognised. He must have been dreading it. He gets the direct question and, well, he denies Jesus. And uh, that's a first denial. So he goes over and starts to warm himself by the fire in the courtyard. And as he does, our attention is moved by John back to Jesus. So verses 19 to 21. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. In contrast to Peter's denial, Jesus stands firm. You can ask anyone what I've taught about. I've got nothing to hide here. It's basically what he says, isn't it? He is happy for anyone who's heard him to answer for him. Now, one of the officials standing nearby doesn't like Jesus' answer, and the brutality begins. Verses 22 to 24. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Can you feel the irony? as this guy strikes the Son of God and tells him that he should not speak to the high priest like that? This trial is not going to be about justice and truth, is it? It's very clear. But as Jesus stands firm in the truth of what he has spoken, we switch back to the contrast. The spotlight turns back to poor old Peter. And John definitely wants us to see the contrast. Let's have a look, verses 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose Peter, his ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Wow. Peter denies Jesus two more times, three times in total, and then that dreaded rooster crows and reminds him about what Jesus had said way back at the start of that dinner the, uh, earlier in the evening. Let's pick it up uh, back in John 13, 37 to 38. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That'd be the worst sound to hear in the world, wouldn't it? That rooster crowing. You'd want to throttle that rooster. Yeah. So I guess my question now is, is this passage characterising Peter as strong or weak? It's your last question to chat about with the person next to you. Enjoy 30 seconds. Let's put it on the screen. Is this passage characterising Peter as strong or weak? Go for it. Quick show of hands. Quick show of hands. Strong. Strong. Weak. Strong. Weak. Are there a few people, Joseph, who are uh, perhaps uh, going both sides of the fence on this one? Yeah. Uh, I think so, yes. All right. Let's have a think about this together. You wouldn't want to knock Peter, would you? Just being there, he was as tough as teak just to be in the courtyard of the high priest. He was close to Jesus during Jesus' time of need. You wouldn't want to go away from this passage thinking that Peter was some kind of weakling who let down his Lord more than I would have. You know, I would have been tough and I wouldn't have denied. And uh, No, I don't think so. I don't. I think that would be a mistake to make that, to think that about Peter. 
I think this passage shows us Peter and his denials for the opposite reason. This passage isn't about Peter being weaker than the rest of us. This passage is about Peter being stronger than the rest of us. And even he, as strong as he was, was not able to stay with Jesus to the cross. Peter is there to show us that even the strongest of the strong could not go with Jesus to the cross. Only Jesus alone could face the cross. He was the only one strong enough. This passage is reminding us that Christianity is all about the strong one giving his life for the weaker ones. So we're at point four, the last point today, the strong for the weak. Do you think you could have done better than Peter? You're kidding yourself, aren't you? No way. Um, No mere mortal could have stood with Jesus as he faced his trial and his execution. In fact, that's the big point of this passage. Jesus is facing this trial and execution in the place of the rest of us who couldn't stand firm in the face of trials. You see, Peter is just like us. Stronger than us, maybe, but weak in the face of pressure. He's a failure when it comes to honouring God the way he'd like to, just like us. Aren't we all like that? Isn't that our problem? We all want to honour God, but we all know we keep failing. And yet Jesus, knowing our weakness and knowing our failures, was strong to the end so that he could die to pay for the sin of our weakness and the sin of our failures. That's what Christianity is all about. Jesus, the strong one, dying for all of us weaker ones. Christianity is all about the strong one going to the cross to pay the penalty for the sin of the weaker ones who couldn't pay the penalty ourselves and live. We need to remember Caiaphas' prophecy, it's better for one man to die for the people. So how do you like to think about yourself? Strong, committed, faithful, trustworthy? You need to be careful that if you hold on to that delusion, you might not go to Jesus for salvation. Self-reliance, when it comes to God, is a fatal flaw. If you think you can take care of yourself when it comes to the things of God, you will miss out on heaven altogether. The reality is that none of us are perfectly faithful, completely trustworthy, or even committed to God as we should be. And it's only when we realise our failures in these areas that we will call on Jesus to save us. So can I encourage you to get rid of your self-reliance? Your self-reliance will only take you to hell. Humble yourself before God and recognise that you can't save yourself. God knows that you can't save yourself. That is why he sent his own son to the cross to die in your place. Do not let your human pride rob you of what Jesus is offering. This passage tells us that Jesus had to do it on his own. That's the truth of salvation. Jesus does it on his own. It's not you get halfway and he'll get you the rest of the way. It's not he gets you halfway and you've got to finish it off the rest of the way. Salvation is all of what Jesus has done. All you do is trust him. That his death has paid for your sin and made you right with God. Peter demonstrates exactly what weak humans like us need. 
We need Jesus to die for us. But you know there's a fascinating little end to Peter's story? Because it doesn't finish here. Jesus dies and he rises from the dead and then he does something that changes Peter forever. He gives Peter and all his people his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit gift that Jesus gives to people who put their trust in him, it changes them. It changed the Apostle Peter and all the other Apostles. The Holy Spirit empowered Peter and all the Apostles to face persecution with bravery, to face ridicule and imprisonment and brutality and even death. Most of those original 11 disciples, most of them were killed for not denying their faith in Jesus. Peter and the other disciples were strengthened by the Holy Spirit for one key task to take the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to other people who were still weak and still in need of salvation. Today, I want to encourage you to embrace your weakness, to cast yourself on Jesus, the strong one for salvation. And then once you've done that, to recognise that, in a sense, Jesus giving his spirit is supernaturally empowering you so that you can play your part in the mission of the gospel going out to others who are still stuck in their weakness, needing salvation, needing the strong one's death in their place. And so um, if God has strengthened you by his spirit, can I encourage you to care about others enough to take the gospel to those who are still weak and needing salvation? Because that's what God is doing in the world. And that's why God strengthens his people, so that we might play our part. Let's give thanks to God for everything he's done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father God, we really are thankful to you for everything you've done through Jesus. We recognise our weakness. We recognise that we're not as committed as we'd like to be, not as faithful as we'd like to be. We recognise our struggles, our weakness and our sin. And we are sorry for it. But we're so thankful that you understand our weakness and our struggles and our sin. And you have done the thing that deals with our great problem in sending Jesus to die in our place. Thank you that he was the strong one. Please help us to trust him as the strong one that we need for salvation. And please help us then to live as followers of Jesus with his Holy Spirit, taking the good news of the gospel to others who are still weak in need of salvation. And we pray for our friends and our family members this Easter that we will be bold enough to share the good news of the gospel with them so that they might be able to come to the strong one and have life and salvation in him. Thank you for everything you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.